0: okay so before we get started i would like to remind you guys again um i do not ask for money for these shows i don't have a patreon page uh one thing i really would appreciate very much right now is if you could just go on uh, apple Podcasts or itunes and leave me a review or at least you know five stars anything like that also Savage Continent now has a Facebook page, so uh, if you get a chance, just go on Facebook, look up Savage Continent Podcast, you should find us there. Okay, so on with the show. Okay, welcome back to Savage Continent. Uh, In our last episode, uh, we covered how this huge bluff that the Soviets had pretty much perpetrated for, I'd say seven years uh, has just been blown wide open while boasting that he was turning out ICBMs the way Apple makes iPhones these days. uh, We learned very abruptly in 1961 that it's all a lie. I mean, there were only four ICBMs operational and they could easily be taken out with uh, an american first strike uh soviet missiles are poorly defended their radar was bad i mean uh several times you're gonna have um u.s planes uh go deep into soviet territory and they're not even discovered uh as for soviet nuclear submarines uh we haven't really talked about them but there were very few soviet subs and uh compared to the american tri uh i'm sorry polaris program um they're very primitive uh and even then they're like almost all in port um these subs were rushed into service uh their early safety record is terrible uh you know, the the original idea is that they were supposed to launch an enormous multi-megaton uh, nuclear torpedo attack on coastal U.S. cities like uh, New York or Los Angeles. And they would sort of deluge these cities with these huge atomic tidal waves full of radioactive water. Uh, it's it really, you know, I, I, you can just sort of visualize what that would have looked like. Uh, it's pretty apocalyptic. The uh, thing about a uh, a nuclear torpedo is that you can make it larger than you would uh, a, a nose cone on an ICBM. Uh, it's A nuclear torpedo could be fairly large, but... At this point, the technology just isn't there and the program is sort of dropped. Khrushchev wants to go toe to toe with the US, but right now uh, there is just no comparison. But then you sort of have to blame Khrushchev. He could have been open and had an honest dialogue with the West, uh, maybe allowed Eisenhower's Open Skies program to become a reality, maybe? Uh, no. He understood correctly that make-believe nuclear power can be just as good as the real thing, as long as the other guy would never get to call your bluff. Ah, uh, but those satellites, those damn satellites, damn them. Well, never mind all that. You see, it's not easy for someone to follow up somebody like Joseph Stalin and just say, hey, here it is. We don't have much going on. Let's sort of tone down all of this militarism. I mean, the fact is that the Soviet Union is a very militarized state. It always has been. Khrushchev is just not the kind of leader who has... That sort of security. Uh, The Politburo probably wouldn't have gone in for that sort of thing anyways. And still, he has a couple propaganda victories under his belt that were very public, and the whole world knew about them. The Tsar Bomba was the largest explosion in the history of mankind, coming in at 50 megatons. Uh, He had Sputnik, the first man-made satellite in space, and now Yuri Garrigan is the first human being to go into space and come back down again. And let's not overlook the fact that Yuri Garrigan, just like Sputnik, got into space via the nose cone of an ICBM. And more importantly, he came back down safely. So if you can bring a live human being down to Earth safely in the nose cone of an ICBM... I think you could probably bring a warhead back down safely as well. And let's not forget that uh, he still has plenty of these short-range, medium-range, liquid-fueled ballistic missiles. Uh, This is one area where things have been working well for the Soviets. If he can only maneuver these missiles into place, perhaps just maybe this advantage the Americans have can be offset in Cuba. You have this Fidel Castro guy who so far really seems like a dependable ally. Uh, He kind of reminds Khrushchev of Soviet communism in its early sort of optimistic days. And He develops this sort of emotional attachment to this young Cuban revolutionary. If these missiles become operational in Cuba, I mean, really all you have to do is place, what, two, three megaton range weapons on literally any American city? I mean, what difference does it make if America can place 200 weapons on your cities? your American rival will still sue for peace. I mean, would he trade New York City for Moscow, Leningrad, Kharkov, and then pretty much every other city in your country? Uh, Hell no. He's weak. Americans can't take a punch. They can't sacrifice. I mean, they cry about how their fighting men suffered in World War II. They cry about Pearl Harbor. The Soviets took 50 times that damage. And they're still at the top table. When you get to an age where potential fatalities for even a small nuclear exchange are measured in the millions or mega deaths, the numbers get to be sort of numbing. What difference does it make if 10 million die or 100 million? It reminds you of that Stalin quote where one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. If you're Khrushchev, you have to think to yourself, this little rich boy wouldn't be able to think of even a million casualties. He would be crying in his latte and popping Valium. What if this house in the Hamptons is in the Target area? I mean, uh, what would happen to his polo club? (laughs) The Cuba gamble just seems like a good risk. What's about to happen, though, must have completely thrown him off balance. I mean, first off, Kennedy found out. Damn. Oh, well. No worries. He's too weak and driven by political concerns to take too strong a stance. And he has midterms coming up. Why would he rock the boat? And oh yeah, I mean, we've already, we've already had these same weapons pointed on all of his allies. Britain, France, West Germany, Japan. Nobody would have sympathy for him making a stink over these stupid little missiles. They tell him to get over it. Of course, that's not what happened. Kennedy would literally fall back on PSYOP-62 level threats of massive retaliation. I mean, what you have now is two startled and scared gunslingers with their fingers on the trigger. Just one squeeze and then cue the mushroom cloud montage. Then there's an infinitely more scary, I mean, in my opinion, figure... I mean, the person in whose country these missiles reside. Fidel Castro. And, wouldn't you know it, he wants to go down in a nuclear blaze of glory. Has the world ever been in this much danger since that comet hit the dinosaurs? We shall see, this time on Savage Continent. So, uh, when we left off last time, uh, we just talked about a couple of these early XCOM meetings. Uh, You have one where Curtis LeMay accused Kennedy of appeasement when talking about his strategy for a a blockade or, or quarantine, as he'll call it. Accusing Kennedy of appeasement is loaded language. Kennedy's father had been badly tarnished by an unwillingness to take a firm stand against Hitler, even after everyone else had gone over to the other side. As a ambassador to the UK, he even disobeyed direct orders from FDR and negotiated with a, a Nazi economic advisor. Kennedy was well positioned for high office in those days, and that stand sort of did him in. Uh Joe Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy's father, sort of lived through his kids politically thereafter. It was almost like his revenge against the people that had shut him out personally. You could say that his son John was sort of his stooge if you want to be cynical about it. But for LeMay to have gone there, I mean, that's a low blow. Uh, LeMay was an a-hole. Even if you like the guy, you do have to admit it. He looked down on John, uh, and he didn't make any secret of it. Now, the thing that you have to know about these meetings is that there was a secret taping system. So a lot of what's being said was supposed to have been off the record, but it just shows you the kind of contempt that some of these guys had for Kennedy. Meanwhile, Kennedy doesn't have that great opinion of them either uh he's going to blame his advisors for getting him into this whole bay of pigs fiasco in the first place and if it weren't for that maybe khrushchev wouldn't have looked at cuba maybe castro wouldn't have been that interested in having the missiles there it all became very personal for him after that so sickened by the bellicosity these generals were showing afterwards, he's going to sort of vent, uh, quote, these brass hats have one great advantage. Kennedy told his longtime aide, Kenny O'Donnell, if we do what they want us to, none of us will be alive later to tell them they were wrong, end quote. Uh, Kennedy's brother, Robert, is going to tell XCOM that uh, he doesn't want uh, his brother to be another Tojo and and launch a Pearl Harbor in reverse. Uh, JFK will even reach out to former President Eisenhower as to what he thinks Khrushchev will do. I mean, would he use the nukes or no? Uh, Eisenhower will say no. In a uh, private phone call with uh, JFK, he'll say, quote, Oh, I don't believe that they will. Something may make these people shoot them off. I just don't believe this will. End quote. Uh, fortunately, Eisenhower is right, at least when it came to what Khrushchev was willing to do. However, as we'll see, there's much more than just that. Uh, that night at 7 p.m., Kennedy went on national television and said the following quote, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union, end quote. If you are Khrushchev watching this speech, and he has to be watching this speech, I mean... I, I don't know if he was sitting down. Hopefully he was. Uh, even then he might have fallen right out of his chair. Uh, this is massive retaliation. This is something that Eisenhower would have threatened, not like this little rich kid. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is Psyop 62. I mean, Kennedy, the guy who completely boobed up the Bay of Pigs invasion the previous year and, and looked like a lost little boy at the Vienna summit. I mean, he just laid down the gauntlet. I mean, whatever happened to that whole flexible response? I mean, I mean, who are you and what have you done with the JFK that we remember? You know the spoiled rich daddy's boys that just pops pills and chases around high-priced call girls? What's going on here? I mean, I need to touch on something so far that I've uh, neglected. I mean, if you are an American citizen living in this era or... Frankly, maybe someone living in any of the countries involved in a potential conflict. You know what it's like to live in a world where at any moment things could come to an end immediately. In response to Kennedy's speech, food flew off the shelves and many people prepared for the worst. Uh... You're probably reminded of that classic uh, 1951 Burt the Turtle video that everyone makes fun of. Uh, believe it or not, it's actually pretty good advice uh, if an atomic detonation occurs several miles from where you happen to be. I mean, if perchance the flash didn't blind you, you would have several seconds to brace yourself from the heat flash and the blast wave. Fortunately, the amount of people that have actually been exposed to a nuclear detonation is, is, is limited. It was only Hiroshima and Nagasaki, fortunately. But evidence gathered from survivors there showed that people that had been behind something as just as simple as a tree or a, a small wall made, made a massive difference. Observers tended to stare in amazement at the fireball. Not knowing that the heat flash and shockwave were only seconds away, that's where a majority of the injuries really occurred. Of course, if you were anywhere close to the actual detonation itself, there really was no hope for you, and people really did understand that. This whole Cuban Missile Crisis episode sort of reminds me of an episode of the... uh Twilight Zone entitled uh, The Shelter. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I think you can get most of this stuff free online. It may even be on YouTube. Um, it had actually aired the previous year in 1961, and it is just like such a great show. Um, certain episodes of The Twilight Zone really stand the test of time, and, and this is one of them. Uh, the scene is a birthday party in this really nice picturesque suburban neighborhood on maple street uh bill doc is having a birthday party and there are three couples invited there with children and everyone's telling doc what a great guy he is and and teasing him about all of this hammering that's going on in the night of course these guys have been friends for a very long time i think like 20 odd years and and he takes it all in good stride then uh Bill's son comes in, and he said the TV said to turn on CONELRAD. Now, CONELRAD was basically uh, an acronym for uh, Control of Electromagnetic Radiation. It was active from the 1950s up until uh, 1963. It was kind of like the precursor to the emergency broadcast system. What would happen is any radio program or TV show would be interrupted by a government announcer basically sort of telling you what to do so in this episode uh it said 1104 our distant early warning line and ballistics line reported uh, evidence of unidentified flying objects and they believe they could be incoming icbms and then everything goes to this code yellow and uh, code yellow means one thing that there's an incoming enemy attack uh So, everyone is advised to go to prepared shelters if they have one, uh, you know, if not go to your basement or whatever. So, um, everyone leaves the dinner party. They all just like rush out, (laughs) you know, they run to their houses. But one by one, everybody returns to Bill's house. Turns out no one has a shelter, Bill. Bill so, Bill kind of remains locked in this downstairs space that he has, and you can tell it's built up. It's got bricks around it and everything. His neighbors become increasingly desperate, and they vie. To, you know, if Bill lets anybody in, that that they should be the ones to get into the shelter. And one's going to say, "Well, you know, I got I got a little kid," and then somebody else is going to shoot back, "Well, does that make you any better than the rest of us?" And then you know, some guy's going to be, you know. See, he, she shouldn't be able to come in because uh, you know he's he's one of these immigrants, and then then there's a fist fight outside, and pretty much everybody's about to just rip each other to shreds. And meanwhile, Bill is just huddled in his his shelter. He's behind this thick door, and it gets super heated. Uh, apparently, you know people are like, well, you could just let us in, I promise. We'll just sort of stand up. And it's a super small down there, and there's only so much food. And then Bill's like, well, you know, are you are you going to bring your own air? And then it gets so heated at the end that the neighbors run off, and they find, like, this huge pipe, and they use it as a battering ram. And they bam, 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 and they finally, like, they knock down the door to this shelter, which would have totally negated its value as a shelter. And then, right then, it's like Rad comes on again, and <laughs> basically they call off the entire uh, the, the warning. They said that it, it was just a you know reflection off of a satellite, and uh, everybody is just like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, Bill, we'll, we'll fix this up. Hey, uh, wh- what do you say? Let's have a block party. And then Bill just has this thousand yard stare. Clearly, he knows that no matter what, uh, things are just not going to be the same between him and his neighbors ever again. So every Twilight Zone episode has like a narrator that sort of like opens it and closes it. So the, uh, the closing message from this narrator, Rob Sterling, is a uh, quote, no moral, no message, no prophetic tract, just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive... The human race has to remain civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic from the Twilight Zone. And believe it or not, this is something that was talked about. I mean, you'll have Catholic priests writing tracts over whether it was moral to shoot your neighbors if they were trying to get into your shelter and you're trying to protect your family in that moment. This is a reality that people just had to live in, and it happened right as the America we know of was sort of being built. You can't overestimate how much of our modern world was constructed around this fear of impending doom. I mean, take the interstate highway system. Google it up. Originally, there were signs talking about how in the event of enemy attack, these roads would be open only to official traffic. The height of all highway overpasses was set at the the level that it was thought that an ICBM could could travel safely under 16 feet or so. Even the popularity of houses with white picket fences. If you painted your house white and the fence and everything else white, uh, if there was a atomic detonation the heat flash wouldn't just set everything on fire if the house was darker then that could happen very easily uh there is a civil defense video which uh says quote in every town you'll find houses like this run down neglected trash and litter disfigure the house and yard an eyesore yes and you'll see much, much more. A house that's neglected is a house that may be doomed in the atomic age. So that's what the narrator tells us in this uh, one civil defense video called The House in the Middle. So what they'll do in this video, which is, it's actually kind of scary, they'll set up these three sort of mock houses in the middle of the desert, and they uh, two of the houses are kind of like run down. The paint's sort of chipping off of them. There's sort of rubbish in the yard. Then they'll show the inside of the house, and there's just magazines and all sorts of like junk everywhere. But the house in the middle has this brand new coat of paint. You know, the the fence is painted white. The house is white. Inside is all nice and tidy. Then uh, they show atomic detonation. And boom! You know, all the houses take a bunch of damage. But the two houses with the junk and they're not well painted, they just sort of burst into flames and they burned to the ground. But the house that's, you know, well capped and it's, uh, it, it's painted white. It actually, it's not undamaged, but for the most part, it just doesn't burst into flames like the other houses do. And it just shows you the power of one of these heat flashes. And yeah, I mean, just painting your house white. Why not? So that becomes popular. Uh, so the civil office of civil defense is this, uh, sort of government organization that's going to put out hundreds of videos and pamphlets advising on people what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. And, uh, of course, as I mentioned, the biggest push is going to be for the construction of Fallout shelters, uh, as we talked about in the uh, first episode, the uh, 1950 Castle Bravo test made people acutely aware of the dangers of nuclear fallout. And the idea is, if if you're near Ground Zero, there's not much that can really help you. the The blast, the heat, and the fire are going to make that situation hopeless. But Most people, especially the people in the America we all, you know, know and love in the suburbs, uh, you know, they might be spared that. If you could find a place adequately shielded from radiation for two weeks, you might be all right. So, there's one video that I found particularly striking, and you can do a deep dive on these things. There are tons of these videos just still online, and they're quite fascinating because, yeah, again, it's it's like this picturesque nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties America, and the stuff they're talking about is absolutely just it could not get any darker. Uh, there's one from nineteen sixty three where this reluctant uh, council member makes a presentation to a town meeting requesting funds for a, a community fallout shelter. And he explains the basics of Fallout and uh, that, you know, it, everything that I told you so far. is just, you know, kind of a real layman's, you know, demonstration. Um, he'll respond to questions. He gets one question. Uh, How far do you need to be from an explosion to live through it? And he answers, uh, well, uh, quote, let's take a, a 20 megaton surface burst. <laughs> 20 megatons is absolutely like nuts by the way i mean the the biggest explosion the u.s ever did was 15 megatons and then he's going to respond uh you would have a good chance of surviving if you're 12 miles from the point of detonation provided you knew what to do you know and then there's a woman just gets up he's like well what do you do and councilman is like a number of things the first sign of a nuclear explosion is a blinding flash of light that means you have three seconds before the heat or thermal wave. During those few seconds, you should try to get away from windows and behind something solid. That would minimize the burn effect, which lasts for five seconds. Then you would have one minute to seek maximum cover before the blast. If possible, go below the surface of the ground. After the blast is over and the fall, the fallout will not begin for at least another 30 minutes. During that time, you should seek a shelter... Where you can remain for at least several days. Then there are questions like, uh, how do you know when to come out? What if my husband is in a different shelter? Why are they pushing family shelters? Uh, What happens when you come out of a shelter? Is there anything left outside? And then he'll answer to that one. The fact that you've survived the initial blast means there is a great deal remaining outside. He talks about decontamination teams, the, the, the safety of seal food and, you know, the water that might have been exposed to radiation. Um, you know, he can wash fruits and vegetables and they'll be OK. But the water has to be from underground sources. And then something interesting happens. This agitated man gets up and, and unexpectedly said, "May I have a word, sir. I've been sitting here for 15 minutes and listening to you, and I'm appalled that you would lull these people into a false sense of security. So your, your councilman, he's, he's playing it cool. He's like, I wasn't aware of any lulling. You gave me the impression that we would be safe in these so-called community shelters. And then he's like, safe from fallout. Yes. Isn't it a fact that blast and fire are by far the most deadly of all thermonuclear effects and that when a bomb hits our homes will be pulverized and <laughs> you say that would happen within a few miles of the burst in the direct target area i'm speaking of places where there are survivors do you mean to imply that we are not a direct target area i don't know if we would or we wouldn't not a direct target area with our up-to-date chemical plant in our modern county airport only two miles away He's like, I can tell you from reliable sources that the enemy would not have enough weapons to hit every plant or population in the United States. I say that we are a prime target area and nothing can save us. And at that point, the room gets like all disturbed and people start like muttering. And then another man gets up and he's actually the same actor that plays Bill in that Twilight Zone episode. Um, and then this is, this is the part that really kind of strikes me. He says, Sir... Your remarks are familiar to me. I've thought them myself. I have felt them myself. The feeling of futility, of doom. And I have felt the opposite too. The sureness that it could never happen. That it was much too horrible to happen. Then one day I realized that these two apparently opposite views had much in common. Both led to complete inaction. Both allowed me the leisure of doing nothing about my unique predicament as a 20th century man. I had faced two possibilities, world peace and world destruction. I was totally reluctant to face the third, a possibility of a nuclear war in which some will survive, the most difficult of all to face because it requires intense preparation, work, sacrifice, and money for a day we hope will never come. If it doesn't and the world is spared, who will care how much these things have cost? If it comes and we are ready, then whatever we have spent will be cheap. You might say a form of insurance. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask your assistance in constructing shelters in our public school. And then everybody gets up and they clap. And then, you know, there's this, the narrator kind of does a voiceover. It's like chain reactions are difficult to stop when started. Okay, so we will get back to kind of the plans for people surviving nuclear war but i really want to get back to our story all right so as panicky as u.s civilians got at this juncture it's not even close to what khrushchev might have been feeling i mean my heart goes out to him at this point i mean the doom not only for his career and life but like everyone in his sphere his country he had placed everything on the line just for a lib, a little leverage and now it just looked like it was all circling the drain uh historian Michael Dobbs writes in his uh, book uh one minute to midnight quote a Soviet deputy foreign minister Minister said Nikita crapped his pants and of course you know he didn't say crap but I Can't really say that here. So, When he heard Strategic Air Command was moving to DEFCON 2, the head of the KGB would later claim that Khrushchev panicked after hearing the Americans had discovered Soviet missiles in Cuba, announcing, tragically, that's it. Lenin's work has been destroyed. Whatever his true mental state, Khrushchev was genuinely disturbed by the latest turn of events. He had witnessed the conventional war up close, and he had no desire to experience a nuclear one at a top, As a top commissar at the Battle of Kharkov in May 1942, he had seen an entire army wiped out unnecessarily because of the mistakes and stubbornness of political leaders. The Soviet Union had lost some 30 million people during the Great Patriotic War. The dead had included Khrushchev's oldest son, Leonid, a fighter pilot shot down in a skirmish with the Luftwaffe. A nuclear war would almost certainly result in more casualties. The chairman was determined to do everything in his power to avoid plunging his country into another war. But he also understood that there was now a danger of events spinning out of his and Kennedy's control. Part of the problem lay in his own miscalculation of a likely American response to the deployment of Soviet missiles to Cuba. Khrushchev had assured Kennedy would end up grudgingly accepting uh, Soviet missiles in Cuba, just as he himself had accepted nuclear weapons in Turkey and Italy. The Americans would be irritated, even angry, but they would not take the world to the brink of nuclear war." End quote. So he had convinced everyone that the U.S. was just going to do little or nothing. He now decided that he needed to dismantle the middle missile sites to avoid this situation just totally spiraling out of control. The fact that the U.S. was promising not to invade Cuba at that point was pretty cold comfort. Uh, he had lost the one thing that he really came for. I mean, how could this be seen as anything other than an embarrassing retreat. I mean, still, he, he's sort of forced to put on his uh, the best face he possibly can when explaining this mess to the Presidium. Uh, he said, quote, We have made Cuba a country at the center of international attention. The two systems have come head to head. Kennedy is telling us to take our missiles out of Cuba. And we reply, give us firm guarantees, a promise that Americans won't attack Cuba. That's not bad. In return for a firm guarantee, we could take out the R-12s and leave other missiles there. We will strengthen Cuba and save it two or three years. In a few years' time, it may be even harder for the U.S. to deal with it. The important thing now is to avoid bringing the crisis to a boil. Time will pass. If necessary, the missiles can appear there again. End quote. Okay, so remember how uh, in the last episode we talked about how there were 162 uh, nuclear weapons on Cuba at the time. Uh, The vast majority of those the United States does not know about. They are small tactical nuclear weapons that would be used to defend Cuba against an American ground invasion if it came to that. Uh, He's still convinced that maybe he could leave those with Castro to protect Cuba. Of course, his opinion in that area is going to change, and uh, we shall see why. But for now, it seemed that uh, both leaders had really started out bellicose. Uh, Kennedy was leaning towards possibly airstrikes or invasion. Uh, Khrushchev was willing to give field commanders the authority to use tactical nuclear weapons, but then he would withdraw it. Uh, now, both of these leaders want a peaceful way out. So, it was Khrushchev that knew that he would come off worse for wear, and uh, it was Khrushchev that is going to make overtures for a deal. Uh, his proposal is going to be the elimination of U.S. Uh, intermediate-range ballistic missiles in, in Turkey, in return for elimination of like those same Soviet missiles in Cuba. So as the crisis is sort of reaching its climax on uh, October 26, uh, Khrushchev is going to write this uh, telegram to Kennedy, quote, if you did this at the first step towards unleashing of war, then well then, it is evident that nothing else is left to us but to accept this challenge of yours. If, however, you have not lost your self-control and sensibly conceive what this might lead to, then Mr. President, we and you ought not now to pull on the ends of the rope, which you have tied the knot of war, because the more the two of us pull, the tighter that knot will be tied. And a moment may come when that knot will be tied so tight that even he who tied it will not have the strength to untie it. And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you, because you yourself understand perfectly all of the terrible forces that our countries dispose. Consequently, there is no intention to tighten that knot and thereby to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war. Then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie the knot. We are ready for this." You got to love Khrushchev's imagery here. You can really see his sort of simple peasant background kind of shining through. Uh, As it is, both leaders really want to disengage, but there's going to be a couple of episodes that could have just directly led to a chain reaction where war happens anyway. So uh, a spy plane, is mistakenly going to fly into Russian Siberia and only makes it out through real sheer luck. Uh, another spy plane gets shot down over Cuba, and then I kid you not, a bear bakes, <laughs> breaks into a Minnesota SAC base, sets off sabotage alarms, and then nearly scrambles a bunch of nuclear armed fighter interceptors. And then there is the Russian submarine B 59. I have a real difficult time seeing the logic in this, but the Soviets are going to send several Foxtrot-class diesel submarines into the area armed with what they call the special weapon, a nuclear torpedo. It's about the same size roughly as the Hiroshima bomb, each one of these torpedoes. I I just don't understand how this is a good idea. So one of these subs finds itself being depth-charged for Days on end. Uh, Inside the sub, in this tropical heat, the temperatures are past 140 degrees. The sub's been out of contact with Moscow for days on end. Uh, The captain, uh, Valentin Grigorievich Savitsky, decides to shoot the torpedo. He has a political officer who also agrees to shoot the torpedo. Usually it's just those two officers that are going to shoot this uh technically it's a t5 nuclear torpedo but then there is a third officer on this one particular sub that also has to agree and that is uh i guess the the fleet commandant uh vasily akrapov it's lucky because again typically you only need the first two guys but you know this ship is sort of special uh They're getting pounded with depth charges. Um, If you've ever seen a World War II movie, uh, I'm thinking of Doss Boot. This is a horrifying experience. Uh, Apparently the whole boat will shake like a tin can, like the the lights will flicker. I mean, it really seems that the end is near. Um, There's an argument on board that even gets physical, but Akrabob just will not. You'll he, he, stand firm. He's like, we're not using this. Um, launching that torpedo on October 27th, the most tense day of the crisis, probably would have started a nuclear war. And really, it all comes down to just the decision of one man. Nonetheless, at the end of it all, even more than some accident involving an errant spy plane or a disoriented submarine... It was Castro and his inner circle that made the situation particularly dangerous. Kennedy and Khrushchev both wanted a way out of the crisis without having to resort to war. Uh, Kennedy concluded that while attacking Cuba, it might result in a success. The off chance that even a single Soviet intermediate range ballistic missile might hit an American city was just sort of too much to contemplate. Khrushchev had no illusions of the fire that he was messing with from the moment he's aware that Kennedy knew he was just looking for the nearest exit. I mean, they might talk big, but you get the feeling that you're dealing with mostly normal people. I mean, the more I read about this emotional time, uh, I I try to imagine Khrushchev in a sort of a rock in a hard place situation. On one side, you have the US and NATO, you know, we, we can nuke you if you cross us, but then this deal with the Cubans, you get the feeling that I mean, these guys actually are welcoming that sort of apocalypse. It's almost like the Freudian Thanatos death drive, like in extremists. I mean, have you ever had a friend that calls you up in the middle of the night and you don't know if they are like under the influence of something and then you try to talk them down from whatever their emotional state is? That is exactly the impression I get from some of the correspondence between Castro and Khrushchev. Here's a letter or a telegram that he's going to send to Khrushchev. Quote, Dear Comrade Khrushchev, given the analysis of the situation and reports which have reached us, I consider an attack to be almost imminent within the next 24 to 72 hours. There are two possible variants. The first and most probable one is an air attack against certain objectives with a limited aim of destroying them. The second, and though less probable, still possible is a full invasion. This would require a large force and is most repugnant form of aggression which might restrain them. You can be sure that we will resist with determination, whatever the case. The Cuban people's morale is extremely high, and the people will confront aggression heroically. I would briefly like to express my own personal opinion. If the second variant takes place and the imperialists invade Cuba with the aim of occupying it, the dangers of their aggressive policy are so great that after such an invasion, the Soviet Union must never allow circumstances in which the imperialists could carry out a nuclear strike First strike against it. I tell you this because I believe the imperialist aggressiveness makes them extremely dangerous. And if they manage to carry out an invasion of Cuba, a brutal act in violation of universal and moral law, then that would be the moment to eliminate this danger forever in an act of most legitimate self-defense. However, harsh and terrible solution, there would be no other. This opinion is shaped by observing the development of their aggressive policy. The imperialists, without regard for world opinion and against the laws and principles, have blockaded the seas, violated our airspace, and are preparing to invade, while at the same time they are blocking any possibility of negotiation, even though they understand the gravity of the problem. You have been and are a tireless defender of peace, so I understand that these moments, when the results of your superhuman efforts are so seriously threatened, must be bitter to you. We maintain our hopes for saving the peace until the last moment, and we are ready to contribute to this in any way we can. But at the same time, we are serene and ready to confront a situation which we see as very real and imminent. I convey to you the infinite gratitude and recognition recognition of the Cuban people to the Soviet people who have been so generous and fraternal. Along with our profound gratitude and admiration to you personally, we wish you success with the enormous task and great responsibilities which are in your hands fraternity Fidel Castro. End quote. Now apparently Castro was sleeping very little. He he was pacing around. He would draft a number of these letters, you know, crumple them up, throw them into the trash. He was chain smoking. I mean he, he was just kind of losing his mind a little bit. Um Khrushchev became very nervous about Castro. So PBS NewsHour did an interview in 2001 where uh, Robert McNamara gets interviewed. This, of course, is uh, JFK's Secretary of Defense. And uh, Keith Payne, who at the time was a a professor at Georgetown, kind of like a civilian defense analyst. So uh, in the interview, uh, Payne says this, quote, I think one of the most important messages regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis is that the other side may have uh, ideological zealots in control, end quote. So in this interview, McNamara is going to assert that apparently Castro and his second-in-command Che Guevara were recommending to Khrushchev that the nuclear missiles be used not in defense, but in a first strike. Uh, McNamara will say, quote, On the 27th, a majority of Kennedy's military and civilian advisors were prepared to recommend attack. At the time, the CIA said they did not believe there were any nuclear warheads there for the missiles. It wasn't until 30 years later that we learned that there were 162 warheads there, uh, 90 for tactical use against an incoming attack, and 64 missiles targeted at the U.S., which would have killed 80 million Americans. Uh, so the moderator is going to say to McNamara, uh, quote, 30 years later, you said you discussed this with Castro, end quote. McNamara will respond, uh, yes. I was there when we learned from a Russian general there being a conference in Havana. Castro is chairing a meeting and examining this. General Gravikov, uh, when he retired, had been commander of the Warsaw Pact forces there in 1962. He said as a young colonel he went to Cuba in this venture. He disclosed that there were 162 warheads there. I turned to Castro, said McNamara, and said, Mr. President, I have three questions. One, did you know the warheads were there? Two, if you did, would you recommend they be used? Three, if they were used, what would have happened? And he, this is, of course, Castro. Bob, I did know they were there. I did recommend they be used. And then I asked, uh, what would have happened to Cuba? And Castro said, it would have been totally destroyed. You and Kennedy would have done the same thing in the case of the U.S., end quote. So the moderator is going to, you know, say to McNamara, uh, uh, quote, he, he, he saw no other way out. And then McNamara responds, uh, no, he would have pulled the temple down on his head. By the way, that is so metal. I love that. <laughs> he Pulled the temple down on his head. Uh, so Keith Payne says, uh, let me follow up on that because, uh, Che Guevara specifically said he was quote, ready for martyrdom. And he thought that, uh, Quote, Cuba was a country ready for national martyrdom. He then quotes uh, Soviet Vice Premier uh, Mikoyan, who apparently says to Che Guevara, uh, quote, We see your willingness to die beautifully. We do not think it is worth dying beautifully. (laughs) End quote. Uh, so Che Guevara in November 1962 did an interview with Sam Russell of the uh, the Daily Worker, and he said, "quote If the nuclear missiles had remained, we would have fired them at the heart of the U.S., including New York City. The victory of socialism is worth millions of atomic victims." End quote. Uh, che would reflect on the episode a year later, uh, writing, "quote." Uh, Here is the electrifying example of a people prepared to suffer atomic immolation so that its ashes may serve as a foundation for new societies. When an agreement was reached by which atomic missiles were removed, without asking our people, we were not relieved or thankful for the truce. Instead, we denounced the move with our own voice, end quote. So, Khrushchev will have to go back to the Presidium and tell them pretty much that these are not people we can deal with, that they are maniacs. Khrushchev's son, Sergei, who is one of his major biographies, said, quote, he had to inform Moscow as quickly as possible of his decision to sacrifice Cuba, quote, let them be aware as they drew up their plans that Cuba was willing to perish for the sake of victory. When he heard Castro recommending a first strike against the U.S., the Soviet ambassador, Alexeyev, was, quote, speechless and frozen, holding his breath as he listened to Castro tell them it's either we or they. If they want to avoid receiving a first strike, said Castro, if attack is inevitable, then wipe them off the face of the earth. Uh, Alexeyev uh, writes, uh, Sergei Khrushchev was uh, crushed by his comrades thinking, not waiting for an answer as Castro started writing his feelings on paper, which seemed like he was writing a last testament. So Khrushchev is going to call a late Sunday night meeting at the Kremlin with uh, his advisors. Uh, they met in the, uh, the code room of the, uh, the Soviet foreign embassy. Uh, Khrushchev ordered, quote, remove them. Remove them. Remove them as quickly as possible. Get the missiles out of there, end quote. Uh, He would tell Foreign Minister uh, Andrei Gromyko, quote, We now have common cause to save the world from those pushing us towards war, end quote. Uh, according to Sergei, uh, Fidel was, quote, He was furious. Castro was mortally offended. He had not managed to engage in a fight with the Americans. He now considered Nikita Khrushchev a traitor. He went on to say, For the sake of this bright future, Castro resolved unhesitatingly to sacrifice Cuba, an international martyr to world communism. Cuba would perish, yes, but socialism would be victorious. Perhaps it was for this that he agreed to place foreign missiles on the island. The motherland or death, we shall be victorious. That became the meaning of his existence. That is why Castro maintained the unshakable calm in the face of impending danger. End quote. Historian Michael Dobbs writes this, quote, Castro's suggestion that he consider a preemptive nuclear strike against the United States filled him with foreboding. Even though Khrushchev was a gambler by nature, his Presidium colleagues would later accuse him of, quote, harebrained scheming. Uh, He would not tempt fate. Fidel Castro was at home in Mirado when he heard of the dismantling of the Soviet missile sites in a telephone call with uh, an editor of La Revolution, Francis Carlos Frankie. The Associated Press teletype was reporting the text of a letter from Khrushchev to Kennedy, which had just been broadcast over Radio Moscow. The newspaper editor wanted to know, what should we do about the news? What news, Castro said. Frankie read the news bulletin over the phone and braced himself for the explosion. Son of a Bitch! Bastard! Ale! (laughs) Fidel went on this vein for some time, beating even his own record for curses. To vent his anger, he kicked a wall and smashed a mirror. The idea that the Russians had made a deal with the Americans, without even bothering to inform him, cut him to the core. Dobbs goes on to write, Uh, Saturday afternoon, uh, October 28th, Khrushchev's letter to Castro, explaining the reasons for his decision to withdraw the missiles, reached the Soviet embassy in Havana several hours after the Radio Moscow broadcast. Uh, When Alexeyev tried to deliver the letter, he was informed that Fidel had left town and was unavailable. In fact, Castro had no desire to meet with the Soviet ambassador. He was furious with Khrushchev for abandoning Cuba and its climactic moment with the showdown with America. Fidel did pay a brief visit to Soviet military headquarters in El Chico in an attempt to get more information. General Pleyev confirmed that he had received an order from Moscow to dismantle the missiles. All of them? Castro said. All. Very well, Castro replied, struggling to contain his anger. He stood up and said, fine, I'm leaving now. End quote. Historian Paul Johnson talks about the, uh, kind of the political fallout that would occur because of these sort of secret sequence of events and kind of how it was perceived in the wider world. Quote, This is what the world knew at the time, and it hailed a Kennedy victory, as did the president himself. Chortling over Khrushchev's discomfiture, he crowed, I cut his balls off. Castro, not having been consulted by Khrushchev and learning the news on the radio, smashed a looking glass, shouted abuse at his Soviet friend, and called him a man with no coyones. The view of Khrushchev's colleague was uh, different, but equally unfavorable. When the Soviet Presidium dismissed him two years later, it referred to his harebrained scheming, hasty conclusions, and rash decisions and actions based on wishful thinking. There is no doubt that the world came closer to nuclear war, probably closer than at any other time, before or since. End quote. As you may imagine, uh, Curtis LeMay is not happy with how everything went down either. He's going to call it, quote, the de- the greatest defeat in our history. Now, looking back, we consider this to sort of be the high point of the Cold War. But uh, the thing is like... The Cold War is sort of like a a market with with tops and bottoms, and uh, nobody really knows when you're at a top or a bottom at the time. I mean, the U.S. is going to move on to get bogged down in Vietnam three years later. The Soviet Union, quite literally, would just lose command of their reason. I mean, all you need to do is Google up a graph of U.S. and Soviet nuclear weapon inventories, After this point, and you'll see what I mean, the Soviets just never stop. I mean, they have 1,600 weapons in 1962. By 1987, they're going to have 45,000. I mean, the U.S. nuclear arsenal never passes 30,000 and actually went into decline during the 70s and 80s. Nonetheless, their move reflected this pessimistic turn in doctrine psyop 62 had returned i mean maybe eisenhower had been right all along historian john lewis gaddis writes quote what kept war from breaking out in the fall of 1962 was the irrationality on both sides of sheer terror this is what uh churchill had foreseen when he saw hope in a quote equality of annihilation uh McNamara characteristically transformed his reliance on irrationality into a new kind of rationality in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He now repudiated his earlier idea of targeting only military facilities. Instead, each side would target each other's cities, with a view to causing the maximum number of casualties possible. The new strategy became known as Mutual Assured Destruction. Its acronym, with wicked appropriateness, was MAD. The assumption behind it was that if no one could be sure of surviving a nuclear war, there would not be one. That, however, was simply a restatement of what Eisenhower had long since concluded, that the advent of thermonuclear weapons meant that war could no longer be an instrument of statecraft. Rather, the survival of states required there be no war at all, end quote. So the idea of counterforce is actually bad policy. In fact, it's making things much, much worse. War would be far worse than anything LeMay or Power had envisioned if things keep persisting this way. Historian Fred Kaplan writes, quote, McNamara began to fear that the counterforce strategy presented no logical limit to the size of the arsenal that as long as targets of potentially military value could be found, or as long as the Soviets added more weapons to their own arsenal, someone could always claim that we did not have enough, that his own endorsement of counterforce was promoting an unlimited nuclear arms buildup that had gone out of his way to suppress. In January 1963, McNamara instructed his staff that they were no longer to cite counterforce as the official Pentagon strategic concept. His staff proceeded to inform the military that they were no longer to use counterforce as a rationale for their weapons requirements or proposals end quote by the time you get to the nixon presidency it's uh, basically gone back to eisenhower's death march and then some Uh, by the late 1960s the soviets had nearly closed the gap not only the number of nuclear weapons but also the quality of delivery vehicles The plan that Nixon endorses is going to be called PSYOP-4. It's the lowest attack. The simplest one involves 3,200 nuclear weapons against 1,700 targets. The maximum attack is going to be 4,200 weapons against 6,500 targets. All in all, this plan is about double the size of the PSYOP that was adopted in 1961. This is just six years later. The total amount of megatonnage dropped on the Soviet Union and her allies could be as large as 17,000 megatons instead of almost 8,000. By the time you get to 1983, the PSYOP will include a whopping 40,000 targets. I mean, Thomas Power's 1960 plan called for just 654 targets. Nonetheless, there'll be a series of agreements that at least attempted to stop the arms race from going completely off the rails. So in 1963, you're going to get a, uh, a limited test ban treaty, which is going to abolish nuclear tests in the uh, atmosphere. Uh, in 1968, there's going to be a, a nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which is going to require uh, any nation possessing nuclear weapons to not help other states acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, In 1972, there's going to be uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Interim Agreement, otherwise known as SALT, which is going to try to restrict the number of land and sea missiles to be allowed on both sides. Uh, And and an interesting treaty, I think, is going to be the uh, 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which is going to ban defenses against long-range missiles. That last one may seem a little bit counterintuitive. I mean, why would you want to get rid of a defense against missiles? But the fact of the matter is that it is much cheaper just to build more missiles than it is to create some sort of a defense system in which you shoot down these missiles that are going, you know, well past the speed of sound. The name of the game in Nuclear War is that offense will always overcome defense nonetheless uh, both sides find some interesting workarounds or you know, you know more pessimistically ways to cheat uh, one of them is a uh, MERV or multiple independent re-entry vehicles uh, under this new technology you would fire an ICBM and then once it gets into space what would happen is the capsule would sort of break open and then all of these warheads would sort of pop out and they could be independently targeted at different targets on the ground. So it's like you fire one missile and then you can blow up 10 targets with that. So it's this huge cost saving device, but you're taking the destructiveness of one missile and you're multiplying it so many times over. The Soviets are going to build one missile and I don't think they actually went through with it, but it's going to have 38 warheads on it. 38 now you get the feeling that in america at least regular people sort of quietly threw in the towel when it came to the prospects of surviving a general nuclear exchange perhaps like many existential threats it's just much easier to ignore them like in that civil defense video believing you know it will never happen or if it does happen we're all toast anyway so who cares Unfortunately, there's a sort of economic logic that reinforces reinforces the the general doom and gloom synopsis. So during the 1950s and 60s, the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and pretty much every major northern hemisphere country put a lot of thought and money into the idea of civil defense. I mean, for one, we all want to feel safe. It's the primary thing we demand from our government pretty much every day. I mean, whether you're in a communist system, a capitalist system, or or anything in between, governments have to do that. But ensuring the survivability of your population can act as a deterrent as well. I mean, if an enemy delivers a first strike, it won't be nearly as devastating if you can protect your people or even parts of your industry your commerce or, or even you know some aspects of your defense I mean some countries went all in Switzerland guaranteed shelter space for every one of its city citizens in the event of war um, some countries allowed themselves to be woefully underpaired in Britain you're and this is you, there's videos of this. It's 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 hilarious. Uh, you're told to basically take a sturdy door off of its hinges and then lean it up against the wall in an interior space of your house, and then you're supposed to pile bags of earth on top of the door to keep out the toxic radiation. It's like a, a sl- uh, like a preteen slumber party structure, but in a, in a nuclear apocalypse. That's that's what's going to protect you. Um, I mean, far more important than any of that, sadly, I would say is uh, the survival of the state itself. So most plans envisioned a very high mortality rate amongst uh, high level officials in the opening moments of an attack. It's uh, a lot of these strategies as you get into the 70s are going to focus on decapitation, taking out the leadership. So. The other side just can't propagate the war. Um, the top rungs of the military might also be wiped out in a preemptive attack. So uh, every high-level government post is going to have this line of succession at least a dozen names deep. I mean, you can even see it in our Constitution. I mean, the 25th Amendment adopted in 1965 has the presidency of the United States First devolving on the Vice President, then the Speaker of the House, there's the the President pro tempore, then the Secretary of State, and then one by one, everybody in the entire cabinet. Those very few times of the year, such as like the State of the Union Address, where everybody in Congress gets together, there's always going to be one person who has to go to this underground bunker usually mount weather where they would sit and watch the speech on tv just in case some sort of massive attack kind of catches washington dc unaware everybody gets blown up and of course you know they made a, a tv show about that with kiefer sutherland uh i wouldn't recommend it but you know it's there for you as far as the uh u.s military is concerned um they're even resigned to the idea that the high command would be wiped out in a first strike. So the Pentagon and SAC headquarters both, you know, don't quote me on this, had like a 100 weapons targeted on each. Uh, the plan for both would be to get key members in the air as soon as possible. And this is something I mentioned before, Operation Looking Glass. So there's going to be something uh, called the worldwide airborne command posts and there'll be these different planes that'll be in the air and they'll cover different i guess regions of the military so there'll be operation silk purse for the u.s commander-in-chief of the u.s uh european command uh operation Scopelight for the commander in chief of the atlantic command uh operation blue eagle for the commander-in-chief of the uh U.S. Pacific Command, then Operation Nightwatch for um, the actual President of the United States, and this, of course, is better known as Air Force One. All of these planes are going to be in the sky at the event of an attack, and because of in-flight refueling, they could potentially stay in the air for weeks at a time, if need be. So originally, the plan was to move command and control functions of the government to secure deep underground facilities and Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Colorado but the proliferation of these more accurate high-yield ground-burst weapons rendered these sites insecure. So what will be adopted is sort of a mobile command situation in which I kid you not they'll be using like large trucks with you know communication technology on top and these can sort of move around the country. So even after a war has started The idea is it's just a big shell game, so the Soviets are never really going to know where the U.S. is sort of being commanded from. So if they have weapons in reserve, they won't know what sites to hit. Now, starting with uh, Eisenhower uh, in-depth and still largely classified plans are going to be drawn up for how to manage the population after an attack, uh... Eisenhower was under no illusion as to how chaotic things would be after such a scenario. He operates under the assumption that everybody is going to be near out of their mind and the chaos is going to be nearly total. He said, quote, These will not be normal people. They will be scared. They will be hysterical. They will be absolutely nuts. This characterization will apply to department heads, to the president himself. We will be bewildered people the plans for work at relocation centers should be drawn up on the simplest possible terms in order to enable a man who will be beside himself with grief and apprehension about his family and his country to carry on and do something which will be of use, end quote. Historian Garrett Grath writes, quote, Eisenhower used a series of secret draft executive orders to create an all new structure for wartime government rebuilt around nine departments and agencies, Some had pre-war analogs, but most would be entirely new. In two cases, those agencies would be headed by existing cabinet officials. But in the others, the government would rely upon secret agreements with private sector leaders, the best minds Eisenhower felt he knew outside the government, who could be deputized in a national emergency to become de facto industry czars. Andrew Goodpaster, the president's national security aide, recalls later, he wanted to bring in wisdom and competence to reinforce whatever elements of the government survived and provide some assurance that our government could not be decapitated, End quote. So these nine czars would have near total control over departments such as production, transportation, housing, manpower, censorship, energy and minerals, communications, stabilization, which meant finance, and then most important of all, food. Of course, if any of these individuals did not survive the attack or their whereabouts were unknown, there was a deep list of succession to ensure none of the spaces remained vacant. The whole plan would blatantly exceed anything allowed for under the Constitution. For instance, the, uh, emergency food agency will have the vast powers to dictate production of, uh, foodstuffs. The emergency transport agency could seize control over any merchant vessel, um, or the nation's highways. They, they could tell who's allowed to drive on roads and when, um, all airplanes would be impounded, uh commercial stocks pretty much anything in any store anywhere the government can seize i mean i don't want to get too far into it because it is super grim but the nation is going to get divided into a series of like six military districts where predetermined but classified individuals would be given extensive near dictatorial powers um an early fear was that if a war happened and some states were hit worse than others, it would be governors who would rebel and they wouldn't send, you know, enough aid to areas that were more affected. Uh, this setup would sort of force them to act in the national interest. Now, the army's main duty would to be infor- to enforce this regime and then keep the population under control. The Constitution would be suspended indefinitely, and you would be looking at a, a military dictatorship situation. Uh, Eisenhower predicted that no democracy would survive the war, and that the uh, this would be the price that we would have to pay to survive in the post nuclear era. Uh, you probably would end up with in a compulsory labor situation where. Wages would be paid in food, in clothing, or like any other sort of essential. Uh, No government seriously considered the monetary system not being completely upended in a general nuclear exchange. Nonetheless, uh, in discrete locations all around the United States, large amounts of uh, cash were kept sort of locked away in reserve just in case something like this were to happen and then there'd be no money around. Uh, Chances are all money would be worthless and we would have to go back to a barter economy, but it was still there nonetheless. Of course, you may be thinking about all that gold uh, at Fort Knox and uh, unsurprisingly, the vaults there were designed to withstand a nuclear attack. Although again, once you get to like the late 60s and 70s, Really, there's no place where you could keep anything safe from a nuclear attack. So all of this begs the question, why did the government largely abandon plans to help average people survive in the post-apocalyptic aftermath? Through the late 1950s, the government did spend a modest amount of money on civil defense, but it was mostly in the area of education, pamphlets, films, or even large mass rehearsals. Uh, Operation Alert was a massive national exercise that affected every major city in the United States. Uh, hypothetical bombs were dropped on each and everyone had to rehearse their own role in response to the crisis. I mean, check out some of the newsreel footage on YouTube for Operation Alert 1954. I mean, Times Square is completely devoid of people at 1 PM. It's super eerie. Uh, 13, 31 New Yorkers are arrested for noncompliance. I think, uh, so ironically, Vacheslav Molotov was in town for the operation. So the Soviet foreign minister got to see how the U.S. would respond to a, a thermonuclear attack from his country. So the Kennedy administration made the largest efforts to invest in, in public shelters. And I'm just using the term shelter because there's a fallout shelter and then a bomb shelter, and they're not the same thing. So these are fallout shelters. Um So with all the talk of the the Soviet, the missiles and scares, like honestly, if you're the worrying type in 1961, I mean, just wrap your mind around the idea that at this point, compared with just five or 10 years before, I mean, the pressure for safe places for people in the event of war was just immense. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller in New York was a a huge supporter of these things. Eventually, New York is going to have something like 18,000 public fallout shelters. Um, His national security advisor, uh, McGeorge Bundy, was against it, however. Um, Rand is going to run some war games, and the results were not promising. They concluded that if the Soviets diverted a mere 10 or 15 missiles to U.S. cities, uh, fatalities would increase by about $20 even under the most favorable circumstances regarding shelters. So politically, it's just not really workable when you really sort of look at it. Uh, Kaplan writes uh, this, quote, Was building 54 million new urban fallout shelters really a good idea, since the effects of blast and fire from even a modest attack against cities would far exceed the effects of fallout, thus negating the entire shelter plan? Conver- conversely, building blast shelters on so grand a scale would cost tens of billions of dollars and would not be effective against the damage from thermal heat and possible firestorms anyway, End quote. And you get these bleak images of people going into even the best shelters and the heat of the firestorm overhead would be such that you literally get cooked like meat in an oven. And these things did happen, uh, particularly in, in Hamburg and Tokyo. Nonetheless, uh, Kennedy feels that he just can't remain inactive. Um, he meets with Rockefeller and uh, our friend Herman Kahn after the Berlin crisis and agreed to add $107 million to the defense budget. Uh, on top of what had already been added earlier in the year, that's a 500% increase from just the year before and it's now that you get those signs that you've seen on the sides of buildings in major cities with the three upside down triangles and the idea is they have to be readable if a person only having a cigarette lighter you know comes across that sign they'll know a shelter's there so in a war condition powers out everybody's freaking out this has to be an absolutely unmistakable sign that here's a place where you can run and you might be okay. Once you run down into those shelters, there are going to be crackers for you to eat for the next two weeks. I kid you not. The company that made Keebler, like they devised these crackers, 50 gallon drums of water to drink. And then he used the drum as a commode afterwards. And then uh, first aid supplies. I mean, it's so grim, but I mean, again, it, just walking around the city, seeing these things there, it was supposed to give people just an added sense of security. If the unthinkable happens, at least there's some kind of a plan. They're going to plan an article for Life Magazine, September 15th, uh, the title being, You Could Be Among the 97% to Survive If You Followed the Advice in These Pages. There were plans for Kennedy to go on TV and basically hawk this Fallout Shelter pamphlet with uh, the you know, titles included uh, Fallout Protection, What to Know About Nuclear Attack, and, and What to Do About... And another one, uh, shelter living will be as healthy as you make it. Um, Eventually, this all sort of quietly gets dropped. The problem with educating people about nuclear war is at some point, they're going to reach the conclusion that, frankly, if you're in a city, uh, it's very unlikely that anything you do is going to help you survive. There simply is too little time for you to... Get where you actually need to be, uh, to be safe. You're you're just screwed. Nonetheless, there will be innumerable manuals and guides to how to survive a nuclear war. And um, you know, I must say, I really identify with people who would fly down this rabbit hole. You read some of this material, and it can be engrossing. The idea that you can somehow, through your own wit. And know how, be a survivor. I mean, that's something we can all relate to, at least mentally. Uh, somehow we all see ourselves living to the end of the disaster movie. But realistically, let's face it, uh, <laughs> we most, it would most likely be otherwise. Beyonce might be a survivor, but she would not survive a nuclear exchange. So in the end, Kennedy just had to cave to grim reality. And then, of course, there is a flip side. I mean, the Soviets see everything that's going on in the United States, and they're just going to use it as an excuse to build more and more weapons. Really, the only thing you can do is just have enough reserve force left after you absorb you know, your, your original enemy strike to sort of strike back and make it just not worth the while. So this idea of the triad is developed with... a. Uh, 400 megatons minimum per leg so that'll be land, air and sea. So of course you have your your land-based ICBMs, you have your your bomber delivered weapons and then of course your sea-based leg which is going to be mostly York, nuclear submarines. So a Soviet first strike may take out one or two but never all three. The second strike would be so devastating at the whole enterprise would be irrational so the u.s would develop a a seventeen thousand megaton total inventory by 1968 um the idea is that you would have a massive reserve for a second strike or even a third strike if the war were to keep going because let's face it it's going to be hard for you to produce more weapons once war starts because these big facilities that these you know warheads are created at i mean they're probably going to be gone in the first strike the most conservative estimates had about 50 million americans dying and even the most modest of exchanges um there is a debate about a missile defense system but for one you have a, a treaty that's going to come up you know that's going to get rid of that whole idea and then the numbers are horrible anyway. I mean, the moral of the story, everything is that off- offense overwhelms defense by about a three to one ratio, meaning for every three dollars that you spend building up your defenses, whether it be shelters or, you know, missiles to shoot down other missiles, the enemy only has to spend one dollar to basically nullify all of that. And then you have these new weapons that really just can't be defended against. Uh, one is the uh, neutron bomb, which has a very low yield in terms of megatons. You know, your typical uh, neutron bomb might have a yield of ten kilotons, but the amount of radiation that it gives off is going to be well into the megaton range. So you'd have this prospect of a bomb doing relatively little destruction to buildings and whatever, but the amount of people that are going to die of radiation sickness is just immense. Then uh, you have both sides compiling these giant stockpiles of uh, chemical and uh, biological weapons. The U.S. is actually going to get out of this game relatively early, but the Soviets will stick with it um, almost all the way to the end of the Cold War. Uh, The U.S. is out via treaty, 1968, the soviet union sticks with it but secretly they're going to uh, employ 50,000 people at 52 separate facilities across the soviet union they're going to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles that and it's kind of amazing how they were able to do this but you know they, they there would be a I guess a warhead that sort of comes down and then there'll be these giant parachutes. It'll descend slowly to earth. And then as it comes down, it's going to spread, you know, anthrax, uh, bubonic plague, um, smallpox. I mean, you name it. There's even a cruise missile that is supposed to fly over enemy territory slowly and just sort of disperse plague spores wherever it goes, uh, that was never actually built. Fortunately, it stayed in the theoretical stage. Now, that leads me to probably the most dark and actually my favorite uh, weapon devised during this whole era. Um, So the Soviets were constantly afraid that their leadership would be decapitated in a U.S. first strike. Uh, Newer missiles called uh, the Pershing uh, sort of put the Kremlin within five minutes. I mean, there's no way the leadership would get away. I mean, they'd build a elaborate network of underground high-speed rail lines to maybe get the leadership out of hards' way, but, you know, there would be seconds to spare. Honestly, it just wasn't realistic. Um, they also feared that in a moment of crisis, the people tasked with using the weapons would get cold feet. Uh, there were a couple scares where... Uh, Missile crews were given orders to move to combat status. And in every instance, everybody would call back with like, uh, are you sure? Is this for real? Uh, huh? <laughs> so if a first strike was incoming, that could be fatal. The Soviets didn't believe in hardening silos to really any serious extent. They just believed in sheer overwhelming numbers. I mean, you could build 50 cheap ICBMs for the cost of like one seriously hardened missile site. And moreover, these could be mobile. I mean, I'm sure you've seen those big missiles on some huge truck that looks like it has a hundred wheels and some dictator's parade. You get the picture. They wanted to be able to fire all of these back, even if the leadership was gone. This is a concept known as the dead hand. It was... A dream that took decades to come together, and it was actually quite a technical achievement for its day. Uh, there would be a series of command missiles that would fly clear across the Soviet Union in the event of war that would automatically launch every weapon in the Soviet arsenal uh, in the event of like heightened tension. The Soviet general secretary could turn on a system known as perimeter, and if war came and he were killed, Officers in these deep underground globes bound by giant steel springs would have the decision whether to hit back or not. Uh, David E. Hoffman, in his book The Dead Hand, uh, describes it thus, The immense burden would be shifted to a few duty officers who might still be alive in a concrete bunker. They would face the big decision about destroying of what remained of the planet. This was not only a concept, but an elaborate program which took a decade to build. It was perimeter. Buried deep within the idea was an even deeper, far more frightening concept that the Soviet leaders considered, a totally automated, computer-driven, retaliatory system known as the dead hand. It would still function if all the leaders and all the regular command systems were destroyed. Computers would memorize early warning and radar nuclear attack data, wait out the onslaught, and then order the retaliation without human control. The system would turn over the fate of mankind to computers, end quote. So Hoffman kind of describes the uh, debate in the uh, the Soviet general staff over how this would go down. I mean, should we leave this last little bit of human control, or should we just totally automate the entire thing? And uh, you know, the thinking is that, well you know, you have just a few people left alive and well, on one hand, maybe they wouldn't have the guts to do it. I mean, half of the world has been destroyed. Are you going to go ahead and, and destroy the other half? And then the counterpoint to that would be like, well, you know, these people are just so, they would be so indoctrinated with a uh, communist, I guess, enthusiasm that life without communism would just not be worth living. So they would do it. Uh, At least officially, only the perimeter system existed, and there was that last little bit of human control. But, you know, uh, you hear other sources which will say, no, 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 there actually was a totally automated system. And then still other people will try to assert that, no, there is a totally automated system that exists in the Russian nuclear arsenal, even today. When Reagan announced Star Wars or the Strategic Defense Initiative in the early 1983, the Soviet Union was on its last legs, although people outside of that country really didn't know it at the time. Basically, the economy had weakened under the Brezhnev regime, and the war with Afghanistan was a massive drain on capital. The one thing that really held the state up was the price of oil, those price spikes that Western consumers dreaded so much actually kept the Soviets afloat for some time. Uh, When that came crashing down in the early 1980s, disaster loomed. Traditionally, historians like to cite involvement in the arms race as the cheap reason for the Soviet collapse. In reality, it was probably a whole constellation of factors. Kennan was right. If contained, the regime would collapse on its own. As for Our story, it's not over yet. As of this recording, there are 1,300 weapons in the global stockpile, and of those, 3,700 could theoretically be fired within the next 15 minutes. The world might not be on a knife's edge like it was in the 60s, or even early 1980s, but it's still a dangerous place. We can't pretend that these weapons of mass destruction really aren't a thing anymore. They wait silently in warehouses all over the world. You may... Drive by some every day and not even know it. They are very patient like that. Next time on Savage Continent, let's turn back the clock to 1917. You've seen the end of this rivalry of world systems. Now let's see the beginning. Join me next time on Savage Continent. Okay, one last thing before we go. Uh, If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the uh, four other episodes that I've done, uh, once again, I I don't ask any sort of compensation for any of this. I don't have a a Patreon page. The only thing I ask is that you please go on to uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes and just leave me a rating or a a five-star review. Um, And then again, we have a a Facebook uh, page. Uh, Just look up uh, Savage Continent Podcast. It should be right there. So just please take a look at that. I am working on another series right now. It's going to be on the fall of the Romanov dynasty and the rise of the Soviet Union. I probably have about three episodes written out already, but there'll be quite a few more. Hopefully I'll get some material to you within a couple of weeks uh, and hope to see you soon.